This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Toronto Mayor John Tory uh, shocked a lot of people yesterday when he announced that he'd like to put toll roads on the Gardner Expressway and the Don Valley Parkway in Toronto. You only need in your mind's eye to picture the thousands and thousands of cars that use those roads every day. And, well, is it a cash cow? Is it something that we be, need to be doing? Is it an environmental move? Let's talk about this. And is this the thin edge of the wedge? In other words, if it happens in Toronto, is it going to happen here and in other cities? I want to bring, uh, we're going to go to your calls. I want to get your calls and, and your thoughts and your, your feelings about the idea of putting toll roads on and maybe even having them here in Hamilton because there are some people on city council that would like to move on this very soon. But first of all, I want to bring uh, Harry Kitchen into the conversation. Uh, Harry, of course, is a professor emeritus from Trent University who's been writing about this for quite some time. Harry, welcome back to the program. It's good to have you with us again today. Thank you. I think we've been through this conversation before. Well, we have once or twice, and I know that you you took some flack when you started writing about this, and uh, now you're a visionary. (laughs) I'm not sure about that. (laughs) History has been kind to you. Were you surprised by Mayor Tory's uh, announcement yesterday? Uh, Yeah, I think I was. Um, A couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, in the past, he has said he wouldn't consider tolls. uh, Highway robbery, I think he called them. Yeah, something like that. I remember when I wrote about them, I started writing about these back in about 2007, and uh, shortly after that, uh, it was popular, made for popular uh, phone-in calls and lots of angry people when I made suggestions about tolls, and he was one that said they probably, that he wasn't in favor of them. And my view all along has been that tolls are inevitable. I mean, they're going to come. And I've always argued it's not a matter of if we have it, it's only a matter of when. And I was a little surprised that the when came as soon uh, as it did. So um, it's here now. Uh, will they go through with it? I mean, the implementation phase is, I think, some distance. It's not soon. It's in three to six or seven years or something. And uh, uh, that may be a bit long. And, of course, councils can change and policies can change. And who knows what might happen. Well, I'm wondering why now. I guess that's the question a lot of people are asking right now, Harriet, whether or not John Tory had a an epiphany, or uh, maybe maybe he just sat down with his finance people and said, look, we need money. Uh, it, it's, I, I'm not sure what the motivation is, but I tend to think it might be the latter more than the former. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I don't know what the motivation is either. I mean, I can't answer that. I, I do think what's happening, though, it's and it, it's it's a, this topic is, is starting to uh, surface in other places as well, the notion of tolls. I think what councils are facing, they're saying, listen, we've got a lot of expenditures we have to make off our tax base. Uh, you know, over time, provinces downloaded certain responsibilities. Uh, cities have had to pick up more. They've only got one tax they can use. That's the property tax. So you keep putting more and more of a burden on the property tax. And at some point, I think some of these people have said it's certainly what I've been uh, arguing and writing. I've done in the last few years that we've got to look. These large cities, Hamilton being a large city, these large cities have to have to look at or have to have access to some new revenue tools. Of course, this means that the province has to give it to them which is not obvious at this point. Uh, nevertheless, we've got to start looking at them. And so let's take a look at what makes sense. And, you know, the ones that probably make the most sense, at least in the short run, if you can identify a specific set of users of a service, maybe you should ask those users to pay for that service directly when they use it. And that's why you get into things like a gas tax as a possibility, uh, a motor vehicle license uh, fee, which they had in Toronto at one point but no longer have, is a possibility. But generally, it's felt that road tolls or congestion charges, whatever you want to call them, uh, make the most sense because you can actually set them up so that you can control the uh, flow of traffic, 
people who want to use it in rush hour and who create lots of emissions have to pay more uh, for each kilometer traveled than if you have no crowding on the road at all and uh, and people travel faster, you can have lower rates. And the technology is there to do it. So, you know, I think it was, my view has been it's just been a matter of time because people are going to say, you know what, if we can possibly identify users of services, doesn't it just make sense to ask those users to pay some of the costs for the service they're using directly? And I think that's what inevitably what some people are, are starting to, to look at. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think the, the, the attitude has changed? I mean, when this subject was first broached, when you started writing about this and others started talking about this in, in years past, inevitably it was simply characterized as a cash grab. And no, we're not going there. We wouldn't dare do that to our ratepayers. Well, you know, Bill, it's really interesting. Uh, this whole notion of changing attitudes is one we looked at. I, I did the first report I did on this for the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area was in 2007. I think it came out in January of 2008. The next one was in 2013. In 2007, I got absolutely hammered. I think I probably talked to you. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I got absolutely hammered in editorials, letters to the editor, phone-in shows. Um, got totally criticized by ever suggesting that you should do it in 2013. A number of the same papers in the Toronto area supported this notion. They had criticized it uh, five years ago. And indeed, we did a little bit of a, a summary in the 2013 report. Now, these, these studies are not scientific, but a number of people had gone out from 2007 to 2013 and said to people who use roads, are you willing to pay for the use of the road if it lowers congestion? Yes or no? Simple questions like that. You know, you don't know if the answer is biased or not. But anyway, there were a few of these surveys that were done. And the change in the attitude over the five-year period was quite noticeable. More and more people said, yes, we are willing to pay for the use of roads. If we can lower the congestion, get improved service, get better public transit, uh, we're willing to do that. And um, so, you know, attitudes have changed, and they have moved on. And, uh, uh, in fact, you know, I think maybe they've moved a little faster than I anticipated they would. Well, you remember the 407 controversy, and and, obviously the government sold it, and that's the concern. And, and I can remember in the early days of that road, Harry, when I, the odd time I would venture onto that road, it, you, you could play ball hockey there. There were hardly any vehicles on there. Yep. I was just there last week, and it has, I, I don't want to say it's as busy as the, as the 400 series highways, as the Queen of the Year, the 401, but it's getting there. I'm telling you, the traffic isn't – so people obviously are used to it. I, I think the only complaint I hear these days is the money, does, you know, the money goes to a private corporation, but they don't mind yep. paying. Yeah, Bill, I agree with you. And the thing is, I use 407 quite often. Um, kids and grandkids live not far from Hamilton, Kitchener and Woodstock. Okay. Uh, so if we want to come around to see them, we have to come from Peterborough. Uh, 401's almost impossible. And I've got stuck in traffic jams on 407. And, you know, 407 is not cheap. And yet, a lot of people use it. It can be very, very busy at times. Uh, so people have accepted tolls. Um, I mean, I think everybody grumbles when they have to pay their, their bill. But they still use it, and uh, and I guess they put a value on time and safety, probably, and say, you know what, I'm willing to pay that little bit for the extra safety and the savings in time. So the the, the attitude there. I mean, the problem. I think one of the things, if if you look at the, the value of an asset when when uh, 407 was sold, you could very well argue the province undersold it by a, a significant amount. Mm-hmm. But I think what happens. I mean, when you put a price on these things, and I don't know how. It was done at that time. But I think most people, most economists, most accountants would probably say, you know, the value you should get for some kind of asset is equal to whatever you assume the future returns are going to be, future net income is going to be, discounted to present value. 
you know, a simple little calculation. But what that means, you have to estimate the future net revenue. And that means you have to estimate the future number of cars that are going to use it. Well, if you miscalculate that, which it looks like they did, the demand turned out to be much higher than they ever anticipated. Well, you know, the corporation got a hell of a deal, really. No um, kidding. But, but if it had gone the other way, you know, if, the, if it had been set, and I don't know what the nature of the contract is, but if it had been done on these lines, if it had gone the other way where all of a sudden people decided they aren't going to use it, well, maybe the government wouldn't look like a star. So, you know, it's, uh, you're trying to predict the future use and, and, the amount, and the amount of income, and, uh, you know, that's not always easy. How does this roll out, Harry? I mean, we don't know how Toronto's going to do this, and, and I agree with you, by the way. I think if they get to go ahead to go and do this, uh, then other cities are going to follow suit. Uh, yeah. But because but, the argument is always, well, you know, I can picture in my mind's eye, for instance, he- heading into Toronto from Hamilton, and you know there's that one little part of the uh, the Queen Elizabeth Way just as you're rounding off the 427 there, and you yeah, can either go, you can go right onto the lake shore, you can go onto the Gardner. Well, if it's the Gardner that's going to be told, guess where the traffic's all going to go? Well, you know, and that and that is that's always a problem. Uh, and it, it depends on the kind of tolling structure you use and the setup. Um, yeah, I mean, there is there's been a recent uh, paper that just came out by um, I think they're in the engineering program at University of Toronto, where they have taken a done a six year study looking at uh, using what they call dynamic pricing or variable rates set by depending on the hour of the day and the amount of congestion and in parts of the day it could be zero. They did this for the Don Valley Parkway. And in their study, they maintain that y- you can set up a, um, a pricing structure that will minimize the amount of uh, people who go off on those other routes, primarily because, you know, if, you, if you, you, you set up the structure, it's very low at certain times of day so people can stay on the main road. It's very high in, in rush hour, and probably people have to stay there because if enough people turn off, it's, no good, it's not going to be any advantage turning off. Well, exactly. I mean, then you're just heading into a gridlock situation on Lakeshore, aren't yeah. you? You know, and the other thing, I mean, people, I think there's a lot of people will resist, like they always do, they often resist any notion of new taxes, and people will say, well, I'm not going to pay that, I would just use another route. Well, you know what, you might do that for the first day or two, and then you think, you know, this isn't worth it. I don't like all these stop signs, I don't like this, this is worse than the other, I'm, you know, I'll just pay it. Is it going to move people into public transit, though? Is, is that actually well, going to be an alternative for people now? Well, you, you certainly hope so. And I think in, uh, if I read correctly, and I mean, I, I haven't talked to anybody in the city of Toronto, but I've read in what Tory has said, as reported in the press, and uh, what he has said is uh, that a lot of this, the money off this will go into public tra- improving public transit. And there's a strong argument for that in economics. We always call it the second-best argument. It says, you know, the best way to get efficiency and provision of services is to have everybody pay you know, the extra cost for each unit of service they use. If you do that across all services, then you get efficiency. However, the problem at the moment is that road users are not paying per kilometer used. I mean, they're not paying for a lot of the emissions, and they're not paying a lot of the externalities. Uh, they're not paying for the congestion, and they're not even paying um, per, per... I mean, you pay a tire tax, but you pay that whether you drive your car or not. Mm-hmm. So they're not paying for each, each kilometer traveled. So as long as they're not paying the full price of what they're using, you say to a transit user, you know what, maybe you shouldn't have to pay either. And so basically the argument is take some money from the road users and transfer it into a fund that, use, that is used to, uh, that is spent on public transit. And I think that's the argument. I think that's what, uh, if, I, if I read Tory's comments right, I think that's what they're planning to do. And I think there's a solid argument, a solid base for that. The uh, the province has weighed in on this, as you saw yesterday. Uh, Steve Del Duca, who's the transportation minister, uh, has uh, kind of put the blocks on this. Said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! You can't do that without our permission." 
Uh, I get the sense anyway that that's really a bargaining tactic. That uh, I think you're going to see some revenue sharing here. I mean, they're, they're, the province's argument is, hey, we put a lot of money into that road, uh, so you need our permission. In other words, we want a little bit of that cash for ourselves. Well, you know, I'm a little surprised at that comment from the province because the the city of Toronto, the only one in Ontario, we're given a few extra revenue tools. Um, Four, four, five, six, eight years ago. Remember, they they went and they got like they, that's when they got access to the land transfer tax, which other cities don't have. Yeah, they they have uh, the City and, of Toronto Act. Yeah, the City of Toronto Act, and in that, uh, road tolling is permitted. So uh, I understand the city does have the right to do that. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what the province means about that, unless they're uh, saying they're, they're not going to permit it elsewhere. Well, the well, Hamilton Council asked uh, about a year or so ago to try to do the same thing on the on the Lincoln and the Red Hill Parkway, the uh, the right. in the uh, perimeter roads here, and the province basically said, "Look, we shared the cost fifty fifty with you guys, so we we would share the revenue if you're going to do that." And that that kind of killed that discussion at that stage. But I mean, it, I'm sure it's going to get revived again now. Oh, I'm sure it will. I mean, I, I think uh, I, I think this this uh, what uh, Tory has done, quite frankly, is to ring. Uh, he used to raise what you know, quite frankly, is a really quite an important. Uh, I think public policy issue, um, transportation roads and financing roads and financing transit. I mean, this is this is expensive. This is big time stuff, and it's been shown in um, uh, at least one study that I'm aware of. Uh, one study that took a look at how do you handle congestion, and it was done mainly in the U.S. where they have toll roads in in a lot of places. And they said, you know, do you expand the the uh, highway, expand the number of lanes lanes of highway, for example. Um, to handle the congestion. What they found, if you expanded the number of lanes, the roads filled up, just like they were before. People said there's more space, so people drove more, used it more. So, you know, the argument for handling a traffic congestion is not expanding the number of lanes. The traffic, you, the, to handle congestion, you've got to get a price on it. You've got to make people realize this. They want to use it. They're going to have to pay a price to use it. Um, it costs money to maintain these services. How are we going to fund it? Should we ask the property taxpayers uh, even those who don't use the road, should we ask them to pay all the costs for the roads, or should we say, look, we think some of these costs should be paid by those who directly use it? And so I think this is a really important policy issue, and one that that, uh, that people have got to think about and, and consider. Uh, you, you'll get lots of knee-jerk reactions. I mean, I get uh, my share of nasty emails when I make comments about tolls, but um, the... Um, I think you've got to stand back and say, hey, wait a minute, guys. We've got, we got to sit here and seriously think about how we want to fund this and what kind of tools do we want to use and who's it going to affect. So, I, so it's, to me, it's a really important policy issue that he's raised. Well, and it's going to be an interesting debate at Toronto City Council, I guess. I mean, it's one thing for the mayor to suggest this is what he'd like to see, but it's got to go through that council. And uh, I've got to figure there's an election, municipal election in two years. Uh, yeah. This is obviously going to be a ballot question. Oh, I would think so. I think it's... Uh, I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, it's it's it, quite frankly, it's a gutsy move in his part, and it's it's a challenging move in his part. I mean, he's going to have to fight it in the next election, I suspect. And uh, the question is, for a few of us people like me, who believe that this is an important policy issue and this is the direction to go, it's important to us that we, whenever we have an opportunity, we explain the, the merits of it and uh, hope people will see that and agree with it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Continue our series, Managing Your Wealth, uh, in concert, of course, with our good friends 
at uh, First Ontario Credit Union and uh, welcoming back Richard Westberg, who is uh, the insurance advisor with First Ontario. Great to have you back in here. It's like you're going to be pretty much the co-host here now, Richard. <laughs> this is your, your your third time in here during this series. It's great to have you here today. Thanks very much, Bill. It's great to be here, too. I want to talk about something that uh, I, I think an awful lot of people can relate to. Uh, we have uh, w- uh, one daughter in university right now, another just finished a little while ago. It's a huge expense, uh, post-secondary education, and it's, it's very challenging. You know, we've just talked over the last couple of weeks about uh, trying to save for our future, our economic future. And at the same time, of course, you're going to have to spend money on everyday life. Uh, you know, you have to buy a house, you have to buy a car maybe, and whatever else that might be. And uh, if you have kids, at some point, they're going to want post-secondary education, and you want to save for that as well. Uh, are there vehicles that we can use? Are there, uh, you know, f- portfolios? Are there financial la- tools that we can use here to try to do this? Uh, the one I do hear about is is the RESP. We've talked about RRSPs, but I guess it's the Registered Education Plan? Correct, Bill. What's so, that all about? You know, the uh, great thing about the government is they, they do want to encourage certain behavior from us. So they want us to save for our retirement. They want us to help to look after disabled people. And they definitely would like to see us help our kids go to, to university at some point as well. So there's some free money on the table. And it whoa, always whoa, makes really? sense. You said free money. Pay attention to that part. <laughs> exactly you right. You just got everybody's ears perking up like that. <laughs> okay. Wh- how do they work? Uh, Very simply, the government says if you're going to deposit some money for your children's education, they're going to match uh, the first $2,500 up to 20%. So it's like an automatic 20% rate of return on that deposit. And you can put as much as $50,000 into an RASP. So they used to have a max per year, but they just took that off and just said, uh, you can put a total of $50,000 in there as slowly or as quickly as you want to. Hopefully get that done before your kids are 17 and maximize that free money that's available. So that's the government giving seed money on top of, of what you're putting in there. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> no. And in fact, there's even the occasions where they will put some money in there even if you don't. So if you're a low-income family, and as you said, it's, it's a struggle to figure out what you're going to spend your money on. And when your budget's already going to all the bills, how do you help your kids? But if your income is below that $44,000 threshold, the government will actually even throw some money into the RESP, even if you don't put anything in there at all. Okay, let's, let's talk about the contributions themselves and, and the money that you're going to put in here for, for that child's education. Uh, are they tax deductible? Unfortunately, they don't give you a deduction for your deposit. But in a way, that's good because it means you get a couple of other benefits instead. So while your money is sitting in the plan, it's growing tax-sheltered. And when it comes out, and you will always get your own money out, you're not going to be paying any taxes on that money. The now money that's different because a lot of the other uh, tools that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, uh, there's there's tax taken off. And in some cases, there's even a penalty involved. This, yes, is, this, is, this, is, this is your money, though. Correct. So your money plus interest uh, not being taxed is going to come out when your kids go to school, plus the government money that's going in there is also growing tax-sheltered. And if it's coming out, it's coming out in the name of the child, who usually has little or no taxable income. So it's almost as good as tax-free income as well. How does it work? Is it uh, the rate of return? I mean, you you just put money, put money, put money in there, but you want that to work for you too, don't you? Yeah. The government says we want you to put some money in here, but what they don't do is they don't tell you exactly what kind of plan to put it in. Ah. So there are some variations. There are group plans, there's family plans, there's individual plans. And even even within so those plans, Bill, 
you as the uh, the owner of the plan can decide, do I want to go the safe route and just have it in something like high interest savings or GICs, or do I want to be a little more aggressive and use something like mutual funds to grow the money a little bit faster? Okay, so somebody decides they're going to do this, uh, maybe, you know, their son or daughter is maybe even still in the crib and you decide you're going to open one of these things up. What happens if they decide after school they don't want to go to university or to college? It's always a possibility, and it's good to see that there are options available. One is nobody has to use the money right away. So the plans can actually be there for as many as 31 years. So if, uh, like a lot of kids, don't necessarily figure out what they want to do when they're 18. So if they go off and they work for a while or travel, it doesn't mean that the money disappears. It can actually sit there and wait until they come back and decide whether they're ready for school. Uh, case number two, if you've got more than one child, by using a family plan, if one of them doesn't go to school, you can shift those benefits over to another or a third. And worst case scenario is that money will come back to you, at least your own deposits. The government will reabsorb their own money because, again, the purpose of that contribution from them is they want to see somebody go to school with that money. So they, they'll take their money out. Worst, if, if, worst if case you scenario. Di- yeah. If you dissolve it, they, they want their money back, but you get to keep everything else that you put into it. Of course, yeah. All right. Um, what if, okay, so let's assume, to continue along that theory for just a second if we could. Uh, if I wanted to take that money out, uh, you know, the kids decide they don't want to go to university or whatever the case might be, uh, what can I do with it? Uh, can I transfer it to another account? Do I just put it in savings? Can I transfer it to an RRSP, for instance? Yeah, the, the government will actually let you transfer it within your own RRSP okay. with some rules, of course. So they're trying not to penalize someone who just has a child that changes their mind, but obviously they would like that money to be used for its original purpose. All right, talk to us about in-trust accounts then. I've heard that phrase too. Well, we always want to do some things to help our kids, Bill, and education is a big one on the list. It's usually the highest, but it's not the only thing that we like to do. So some parents want to help kids out starting a business, buying their first house, traveling, maybe getting married or getting set up in life. So that's where they'll shy away from the RESP. But if I'm going to contribute other money towards uh, their education, in addition to the RESP, I can use an interest account, which is simply saying we're going to set up an account in our child's name so that any money that grows in that, that account will be attributed to my child and they'll pay the tax, but they'll pay it at a much lower level. The advantage of using that tool is there's no maximums, there's no rules around it, and there's no rule that says they have to use it towards education. So what many parents will do is they'll use a combination. They'll take the first $2,500 that they can afford and they'll put it into the RESP to maximize the grants. And then if they're able to do more above that, they'll use things like these in-trust accounts. So do you see a lot of families then using both? If they have the wealth, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there's even options beyond that. So they may use a a TFSA. uh, They may use insurance products. Uh, There are other choices out there. How do you draw the money out? Uh, Again, what you're doing is putting a lot of that in your child's name. So if they're pulling it out, then they're pulling it out in their own name, paying little or no taxes. Uh, Or the parents may decide, I want to maintain control of that money myself. And clearly, if if I take it out, I'm taking it out in my own name and paying it at taxes at my own rate. 
I mean, you know, I've seen this in, in television and movies. You know, somebody, you know, they have a trust account, you know, for their, <laughs> yeah. their son. Uh, and, and there's a prescribed amount that they can take out of there or that, or that they get every year. Can you put stipulations like that in? Yeah, the in-trust account is sort of the, uh, the trust fund on training wheels. <laughs> so these are very simple accounts where you go into any financial institution and say, I've got some money here. It belongs to my kids. Let's put it in their name. But they're not 18 yet, so I have to manage it on their behalf. So it simply identifies that money as that child's money. But if you want to be a little more elaborate, then you actually have a written trust. So let's say someone passes away. A grandma passes away and says, I want some money that I want to give to my grandkids for their education. So I've got twenty-five dollars or $50,000 for each of them. But I want to make sure that that money is used for that purpose. So I'm going to place it in a trust that has some rules written around it. So someone's the trustee, someone would look after it, but the trust would have rules that says this is how this money is going to be used. This, these are fabulous. And this is one of the advantages, I guess, of, of having an advisor and, and talking to somebody about exactly what options are open to you in a situation like this. And I can see the benefit in, well, either, as you say, an interest account or the RESP. But especially when people are young, starting out, maybe a young family, uh, cash may not be available. What, what options do they have to, to try to find this if they simply don't have the cash to make the kind of contributions that they would like to make? We always like to make sure that parents are in the best financial shape first. One of the best things you can do for your kids is make sure you're not in financial difficulty. Mm. So we look at your budget and we try to make sure that what you're doing is you're allocating your money in the most effective way possible. Uh, Let's look at the RSP, for example. So you're not necessarily saving as much for your own retirement. We encourage you to do that. And maybe that creates a new tax deduction and some return of capital that could be used towards your children's RESP. So if we can get some of your money to do more than one job bill, that's, to me, good planning. So again, that goes back to this discussion we had about having an overall picture and an overall game plan. Exactly. And, and these this this would just be one element of it, whether it's going to be an education fund or an interest account. But it's got to work with all the other things that we've got going for us. Yeah. And uh, we talked earlier that many families and people really have no idea where their money's going or what their choices are. So they have all these little bits and pieces of plans all over the place. Just by getting organized and knowing what's there and what isn't, uh, we as financial advisors, we look for what we call gaps and overlaps. So if there's something really important in your financial plans, whether it's your children's education or something else, we want to see that and hopefully move that up on your priority list. On the other hand, if we find an overlap, uh, maybe you've got benefits that are duplicated because both you and your spouse are working and have group benefits. And maybe you're both paying for something that you're not even using. So if we can reallocate some of that money to something that's more useful, then we've done you a favor. With families that want to start putting money away, and as you said, it's, it, it's not just for education, Richard. There could be a number of different things. I, you know, I've, I've heard many examples of people that want to set something aside for when the daughter gets married or something like that, or to get that house or maybe help them with a car or whatever the, 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 the expense might be. So you've got these vehicles right now, and you've got the, uh, the RESP, you've got the interest account. Are there any other tools that are available for, for saving? The TFSA is one that we've talked about probably a number of times this week. It's really built for this kind of job bill. So if someone that that knows they're going to be spending some money, perhaps every two or three years, whether it's replacing the car, fixing the house, taking the trip, doing something for our kids, 
it's a very convenient tool to use that. We don't get the deduction putting it in, but the money's totally tax sheltered. Uh, it's, when it comes out, we're not paying any taxes on it, and I can replace it back into that account as well. So we use uh, the TFSA a lot for these multiple use accounts. And you talked about trust account. I mean, we're talking about the the interest, but I mean, there are other, as you say, modes of, of trust accounts that I guess that are available too. Correct. So we don't want to get too fancy if we don't have to, uh, but we try to make sure that we look at a basic range of accounts. I, I, I always tell most of my clients, you want to have three basic accounts. We've all got our checking savings accounts for money that's going in and going out all the time. It's liquid, it's accessible, and you don't expect to make a lot of money on that. Then you use the TFSA for the intermediate uses which could be kids' education, could be, as I say, replacing the car every couple of years in case the, ca- the house needs replacement or fixing, or we're going to take that big trip every three or four years. It works perfectly for something like that, and you can afford to invest a little more aggressively because you know the money's going to sit there for a little bit longer. And then your third area is your long-term savings, which is typically where we talk about retirement or perhaps the kids' education if they're very young. And there you tend to see it in two pieces as well. There's a registered version where the government is trying to help you do it. And there's a non-registered version where that's you just saying, if I've got more resources that I can put into this, I'm going to add some more money to the pot. But the key element to this whole thing, I guess, and a consistent thread that we've heard through all of these conversations is is having that contact with uh, with an advisor. Uh, who can tell you about what tools are available and how to utilize them. I mean, it's one thing to say, I know what a riff is, but if you don't know how to use it, uh, it it's not doing you much good, is it? Yeah, that whole picture is very helpful. Actually, I was surprised, uh, although it's a side topic, our DSPs, which is a plan to save money for retired people, there's free money there as well, but there's an age limit. You have to do it before the age of 49. Uh, this year, I've probably done about an, a dozen RDSPs. Why? Because the government was smart enough to send out a letter this year to people saying, oh, by the way, you qualify for this plan, but you're, you're about to lose it next year when you turn age 49. And all of a sudden, all these people that were uh, able to qualify for this plan are now contacting us and saying, help. I wish they were doing the same thing with parents <laughs> and their kids, mm-hmm. saying, you just had a child. Did you know there's some free money on the table here? And like any plan, the sooner you get started, the easier it is. And the more consistent you make that deposit, the easier it is. Well, well especially in the government standpoint, for, for like you say, for the the, the education fund, because, uh, I mean, like you say, you have a, a child, and right off the bat, the government pops money right into the account for you. I mean, that's a, a fabulous incentive to keep on, on going with that and to keep contributing to it. Yeah, getting started is always the hardest part in most act- activities, isn't it? <laughs> But, but it's, again, understanding what's there. And, and I think, for instance, if I got a note from the government, a lot of people I know, they're skeptical. That's oh, the government. You know, there's, there's probably some angle here. But it, it initiates that conversation anyway to say, you know what, I should probably talk to somebody who knows a little more about this than I do mm-hmm. and advise me as to whether or not this is going to work for me or this could be good for you. And, and of course, that gives you an opportunity to talk to them about this wide spectrum of, po- of programs that are available. Yeah, I think, Bill, we let things get too complicated. I remember I took a bunch of tax courses, and I just originally dreaded I thought, man, this is going to be complicated. If you've ever seen the Income Tax Act, it's huge. And I thought, this is all going to be about math and details. And I was shocked as I took those first courses, and I realized tax is less about math and more about emotion and human behavior. A lot of it is the government 
encouraging certain behavior and discouraging other behavior. So why do you think there's so much tax on a bottle of booze or, or a pack of cigarettes? The government's not saying you can't. They're saying, please don't. And on the other side, they look at education or helping disabled people or saving for our retirement. They're not saying that you must, but they're saying, please do, and we'd like to help you do that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, the uh, discussions continue about light rail transit here in Hamilton. We just had a discussion about uh, vehicular traffic, and what about public transit then? And the uh, much maligned, in some people's minds anyway, uh, LRT system. Well, uh, it's business as usual. Paul Johnson, the director for the LRT Project Coordination, uh, has uh, been getting feedback from an awful lot of people in the community. Uh, Some of it good, some of it not so good. And uh, he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to give us an update on this stuff. Morning, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. Uh, Notwithstanding the fact that there are some people that are outright opposed to this, I want to spend a little time with you today talking about exactly what has been going on and what you've been receiving uh, in the way of feedback on this. And uh, as as you move forward on this, I guess the first thing we want to talk about is uh, you're getting a lot of requests about where to put stops on this. Could you maybe just spend a couple of minutes explaining this process as to where you decide this uh, the LRT is actually going to stop? Sure. So, uh, you know, the first thing I want to do is thank the public. Uh, when we went out in September, uh, we had close to 900 people come to our public information centers. Many more went online and provided feedback. And some of the key pieces and elements of the project that we wanted people to chime in about was uh, stop locations, pedestrian crossings, some of the traffic movements that we had uh, put forward as changes uh, that, that would have to be made to accommodate the, uh, the LRT as it moved forward. So uh, we got some great feedback, and and of course stops are really critical because they're they're uh, you know they're not something that can change uh, very very easily. Yeah, this is this is a different right. set of rules here. I mean, this is not like <laughs> a because uh, I can remember when I was on city council. I mean, you know, hey, we want to move that bus stop a block over. Yeah, okay, pick it up and move it. Go ahead. Uh, exactly. But there are ramifications here. You got to build stuff. Yeah, huge ramifications, and and it's not just the actual physical laying of a of a platform. Is also of course. Uh, you know, the the orientation of, of intersections, the underground work that may have to be done. So lots of reasons why stop uh, placement is really important. And, of course, we had a layout of stops that was approved uh, from an environmental perspective in 2011 and was updated when the Premier made the announcement. And we wanted to go out and just see that we made a couple of minor tweaks. We removed one of the stops uh, around Gage, uh, Gage Park and heard very clearly from the, the public that that was probably not the wisest idea. And uh, we had done that for some operational reasons, but we actually updated council in October to say we're technically looking at how we can put that stop back into the into the route. And then more recently, we've had uh, you know some information come forward about the the possibility of a stop at Bay Street, and that's going to be discussed by the LRT subcommittee on Tuesday. What are the logistics to do something like this, Paul? I mean, it just I, I understand that you're not finished with the de- design stuff here yet. But but for those of us who are, are, are trying to picture this in our mind's eye, uh, what is a stop going to look like? It's, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole process here is, it's like I say, it's not just going to be that's where it stops. There's some infrastructure that has to be built there, correct? There is. Uh, for the most part, uh, our LRT system is a semi-segregated system that's in the middle of the road, and so the actual uh, concrete platforms are, are slightly raised. They're nowhere near as raised as a platform that you might get onto for, for the GO train, for instance, or something like that. But they're raised up. They're, uh, they're, they're like stepping from a road to a sidewalk in some ways. They're just a little bit higher than that. They'll have on there, uh, you know, uh, we've seen LR- LRT systems, some kind of shelter, some seating. But basically it's where people will stand to wait for the LRT 
taxi to come by and, and pick them up. They cross uh, safely at a pedestrian crossing to get onto the platform, so you're not having to dodge traffic as you get onto the platform. And uh, then the vehicle actually stopped flush with the platform. And one of the great things about LRT is that it's it's a quick boarding, quick uh, uh, alighting from the, the vehicle. And for people that may have strollers, they may have bikes, it's just roll on, roll off, walk on, walk off. So there's a lot of infrastructure we need. And, of course, at those intersections, then we also have to accommodate all the traffic movements with the change to have that actual platform at those intersections as well. So a fair bit of technical work. It's not a huge, huge cost in terms of the overall billion dollars of our budget budget, but sometimes the impact on what's around it, ground utilities, or uh, in some cases, uh, the property impacts of having a station uh, stop location, uh, those are things that we have to technically go through. So it's not as easy as saying, hey, that looks like a great place to put up, as you say, a bus stop. Uh, Those are a little bit simpler than uh, what we're looking at here. These are all, as as I look at some of the proposals here, at, at major intersections then. Yeah, generally speaking, what you're doing is you're connecting major destinations along your route. Sometimes those can be places, so we, uh, but they're often at key intersections in the community. And so some of the major spots, King and James, uh, obviously we have McMaster University. And in the East End, you know, Ottawa Street, Wentworth Street, uh, Kenilworth, those are the kinds of places where stops are there. Two reasons. One is you can connect with some of the north-south uh, transportation that happens, but also those typically are areas where then you can connect into uh, the key destinations, be those businesses, be they recreation activities. You know, the one that's not at a major intersection, for instance, is a Scott Park location, and uh, that's for obvious reasons because of all the activity with the new school and recreation center and, of course, Tim Hortons Field. Yeah, in other words, destinations. Is is that what you're using as part of the criterion? I mean, that one makes all kinds of sense, obviously, at Scott Park, because uh, you know, people are going to want to take the LRT to go see the football game. Yeah, uh, your, your rapid transit should connect you with key destinations. Those can be places of of interest in terms of recreational amenities or cultural amenities, and also uh, places of uh, of business, and in our case, also places of learning. So obviously, McMaster University being along this line is is really critical. If you look at our overall rapid transit system, we want to make sure we can connect Mohawk College in the future and other things with rapid transit. And of course, we've built our new transit terminal for buses up at Mohawk College. So you want to connect places where people go in large volumes and may want to go for a variety of reasons, be those work or play. What about the spur line now? Same situation? I mean, are there going to be stops along there too? There will be. That's uh, the, the James Street uh, location for those that may, yeah, may, may not be aware. And, and, you know, once you get on it at the King and James, you actually have to transfer onto it. It's a separate line. But then there's there's sort of four stops uh, moving down it. One at uh, Cannon Street is proposed. Uh, obviously, the West Harbor Go Station, and then somewhere around the Ferry Street area, and then terminating at, uh, at Guy Street down by the by the water. So, um, a sh- uh, you know, a fairly short spur of two kilometers, four stops, plus the one that you get on at, uh, at King and James, the interchange, as we might call it. So uh, a total of five along there. Different running style, as we've talked about in the f- past, that will be... Uh, uh, streetcar design where cars and the LRT share the road, uh, and that's that's really because uh, it's so short. Uh, segregating it doesn't get you a whole lot more time uh, savings. And secondly, uh, we wanted to uh, you know not impact in too huge a way uh, the already great stuff that's happening along James Street. Paul you used uh, the term rapid transit just a couple of seconds ago, uh, and and there are some people that are going to be looking at this project and say, well, that that is what we're looking for, something that's going to get me from point A to point B in an efficient but but also timely manner as well. With that in mind, how many stops are too many? I mean, because there are some people that are going to say, no, I want one here, I want one here. I mean, at some point you have to just say, no, we can't accommodate anymore. Uh, we would if the requests 
became uh, became really turning us into a local transit system. So if stops are every hundred meters or so, uh, you don't have rapid transit anymore. And so our our working uh, premise was that we wanted to look at stops that were between six and eight hundred meters apart. And by and large, that's what happens. But here's the other thing: you go back to what our conversation was just a couple minutes ago. You do want to link key destinations and places of interest for people. And so in our downtown core, there's a variety of those. We want people to explore the international village and be able to get there. Obviously, the King and James Interchange is a major part of employment, as well as uh, access to Gore Park and some other amenities. And so uh, in our downtown, we're already a little bit closer with with stop spacing. And in the case of the Bay Street one, we're going to have to look at that very closely because it's actually going to be very close to the James stop. So those are some factors. They do slow you down a little bit in your operations. But the fact that LRT in Hamilton is, is semi-segregated, it doesn't have the, 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 the need in the east-west to slow down for the traffic. It'll have signal priority. We can probably accommodate, uh, you know, the original plan had 15 stops, so we're at 14 if we add the gauge one. So, you know, we're in that realm. My, my comment to the public always was, if we're talking 25, 30 stops, uh, A, not affordable, but B, no longer rapid transit. Is the, the, the idea here to have more concentrated stops in, in that downtown core? I mean, that assuming that, you know, this is destination-oriented, there's more destinations there than there would be in other areas. Yep, certainly always recognize that, and our stop locations have sort of played that out. Uh, we didn't originally uh, have in any of the designs a Bay Street stop, so this latest uh, conversation as I say, we'll have to listen uh, a little bit at the subcommittee and, and see what direction we get to go and explore that. It would be very close to, uh, to other stops, so we'll have to take that into account. But, um, you know, it's quite common in urban-style uh, LRT uh, situations that the, the real heart of your downtown or the real heart of some kind of, uh, uh, of shopping and, and employment district would have more stops than, than others. Uh, once we get out into the east end and into the west end, we get back much more to our you know six to eight hundred meter uh, stop distance, and and that's what you want. Overall, we want to keep up the running time uh, within within the within the parameters of somewhere around that twenty five minute mark, and uh, so we'd have to look at the operations and make sure that we can maintain that. What are you hearing from the merchants along the way? I guess that was that was pretty mixed though in the initial stages of the conversations. Have some of those concerns been addressed, and are more people on board now? Uh, we're certainly addressing the concerns. Uh, uh, you know, I think on board is is always it's it's hard because we can't. Uh, it's a relative term. Everybody, but uh, and it is a relative term. So there are lots of people that are supportive of this and are working very closely with this. I think what we are seeing is more and more people uh, uh, communicating with our office around specific issues that they have and asking us to come out and talk with them about specific. Uh, uh, mitigation strategies around that. We're also going to be tipping very soon into some really concerted effort working with the BIAs and with the Chamber of Commerce to uh, to look at business supports uh, through the construction period, which is really where people's fear is. I think a lot of people, if we could snap our fingers and and uh, and, and have this happen instantaneously, see the benefits of having a really strong and an impressive transit corridor. What really scares businesses when I talk with them is the construction period. Speaking of construction, uh, some of the other communities that are a little further ahead in this project than we are at this stage have had some problems, uh, some some setbacks a little bit in KW, and actually some some construction problems on actually a cave-in in Ottawa just a few weeks ago, too. Are, are there concerns about what might be happening once you start with the, uh, the, the, the road work here? Well, uh, one thing is with construction, uh, you know, there's always uh, surprises that you have to deal with along the way. 
a uh, couple of things in Hamilton. We're not tunneling in any in any way. Even the underpass that we're talking about in the east end around the uh, CP rail line is is not a tunneling system. So uh, we're not as complex as some of the projects in Toronto or in, in Ottawa from that standpoint. Uh, you know, it may be more of what Kitchener Waterloo ran into, where you you they uncovered a uh, a corduroy road uh, that needed to have its examination from a historical perspective done, and it slows you down a little bit. But I will say what we are doing to, to try and make sure that everything stays on time is uh, there's actually about eight months' worth of work that's happening to do serious investigations, both uh, visual investigations, drilling, uh, using all the latest technology so that we understand fully what utility situation exists underneath the roads for the entire corridor. And that work will uh, ensure that we have a good plan of attack that we can pass on to whoever will be building this so that uh, they're not uh, sort of opening up the road and then deciding what the issues are and how to mitigate them. They'll have a very, very strong sense of what our utilities are, and it'll be very current. Do you know what's under there? I mean, because it's interesting you raise those issues that oftentimes when you start digging, uh, especially in some of the older sections of the city, uh, there's some, I uncover some stuff oftentimes that you just didn't expect to see. Well, the good news is of the city of Hamilton, we do have a very good understanding of it, but it's around how current that is and, and how comprehensive with all the utilities, both the city-owned uh, utilities and the third-party utilities. And so this effort that we're taking around subsurface utility uh, investigations is really to ensure that we have the most current, the most accurate, and the most detailed picture. It's actually going to be a 3D picture that we can pass on to those who will be building so in terms of are we going in there and saying we don't have any clue? No. We have lots of ideas of what's there. But this will give us a stronger sense of that. And, you know, the other things you'll you'll run into is just maybe we thought it was in a, a certain state of repair and it might be a little bit weaker than that. Those are the kinds of things you'll uncover through this process. Our goal is to make sure that uh, once the, the people are in place to build this, that they can actually know what the time is going to be to address those utility issues, move them quickly and effectively and not have uh, huge, huge time overruns with, uh, with construction because that's what's really going to hurt uh, some of the businesses. I got an email here, Paul, from one of, uh, well, he just identifies himself, I think it's a he, as a, as a merchant along the route here, uh, asking uh, if this is going to be a surface uh, transit system, how deep is this hole that the construction is going to entail? Because obviously, as you say, the, the Ottawa situation was where they were tunneling, in fact, but if they start digging up King Street here, uh, what are they digging up and how far deep uh, how deep are they going to go on this thing? It will depend along the route, but I can tell you that the deepest utilities in some parts are 10 meters below the surface, so you're talking over 30 feet. Okay, just uh, and not necessarily all the time, but at least in some sections there. Absolutely, this is going to be a big hole. And we're also going to be having to move everything or address everything that's under the road. So it's a significant piece of infrastructure uh, work that uh, we have to be doing. All right. If everything goes according to schedule, uh, when do you start digging? Major construction in 2019. Okay. And that's when the, the shovels are in the ground? Yeah. We'll actually be planning on awarding this contract in 2018, somewhere in the middle of 2018. But whoever's going to be building this will make some time to uh, uh, get their staffing up and get ready for the construction. So there may be some minor early works, but the major construction is going to be 2009. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.